What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 101. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about digital humanities with Sebastian Heath. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show. Paul, how's it going? Pretty good, Chris. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad. Kind of kind of kicking off as uh, I know these recordings are always a little bit delayed. I'm headed to the Society for California Archaeology meetings this week, which means it's already happened as you're listening to this. And I'm hoping to get a lot more content over there. So some good interviews planned. But uh, in the meantime, I, I want to remind everybody, in case you are listening to this in somewhat real time, I am going to the Society for American Archaeology meetings. I'll be at the Wild Note booth in the exhibit hall. So stop by. Let's chat tech. Maybe we can record an interview and, uh, and get that done. I want to mention that on the next few podcasts. So, But today we have uh, a great interview. And Paul, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, introduce the topic and our guest? All right. So today uh, we have as guest is Sebastian Heath. He's uh, from NYU's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World, uh, which is interestingly enough to me at least, uh, only a few blocks away from me. And as I found out at the last lecture, or uh, the last time I saw you, Dr. Heath, um, you're also a graduate of the school that I've been working at for the last 19 years. So uh, <laughs> not only are you you know, five blocks away from me for your job, but uh, I guess your school would have been, um, what, half a block away from me in the next building over. Anyhow, Dr. Heath is uh, ISAW's go-to digital humanities professor. And, uh, and you know, we asked you to be on today because we really wanted to discuss your take on DH and archaeology. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, let me just kick this off with a very simple question. How long have you been teaching at ISAW? I mean, I'm actually not aware. <laughs> uh, I came here in 2010 and sort of uh, had, a, had a ramp up. Um, I was at the American Numismatic Society. There was sort of some, some overlap in positions. Positions. So came here in 2010, was really uh, got teaching underway in 2012, I believe. Uh, so coming up on my coming up on a decade, which has yeah. gone by quickly. Great. You've been pretty active there. I try to be. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always been the DH guy there? Um, so I've always been a DH guy. I'll start out right at the beginning, as with many DH places, um, you know, we focus on uh, community. So I have a colleague, um, um, Tom Elliott, who uh, works on epigraphy, and he's a 
profoundly competent digital hum humanist, um, our librarian. So without going through all names, um, just uh, I saw as a place that builds community and one of the areas around which we've tried to build community is uh, digital humanity. So yeah, I came here doing digital things. I've kept doing digital things, but frequently in collaboration with my colleagues. Well, I find it exciting going to the ISA lectures. I go to them frequently and that's where I got to uh, meet you initially just because there's so much going on there and there's all these public lectures going on. And like you said, there's a lot going on around digital humanities. Um, there's a lot in the city actually going on about digital humanities. But uh, the, the stuff that's particularly targeted towards archaeologists and ancient studies is, is always uh, appealing to me. Talking about the, uh, the, the lectures, uh, which, of course, I just said I love going to. Do, do you find that kind of the lectures, the public lectures, outreach, does uh, ISAW find that as a central part of uh, your approach and, and ISAW's approach to DH? Or is that kind of a sideline, a happy sideline? maybe. No, I mean, we, we, we think of it as essential. It's why we do them, uh, you know, why we start them at, at six o'clock so that people can come. Um, it's why we try to have them represent the whole range of the activities at the society. It's why we host other organizations, you know, the AIA, the Archaeological Institute of America, the New York chapter does lectures there, the American Research Council Center uh, of Egypt, RC does uh, lectures here. So, so we hope that I saw can be an important part of, you know, people meeting each other and talking about things. New York's a huge place. We play a small, small role in bringing people together. That's what we try and do. That's great. Well, uh, from my perspective, it's been pretty successful. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, I was at one of your lectures uh, entitled 3D for Archaeologists, and you ran through a whole laundry list of different technologies that you and your students were using. I was wondering if you could give our audience a, uh, a brief synopsis of what you were discussing at that lecture. Yeah, the, the it was... I think the, the title of the lecture was something like the, the practical archaeologist's approach to yeah, 3D it. and related technologies. Close yeah. enough to that. And I think the title slide that I put up, of course, didn't exactly match the title as listed, whatever. I have been for a while now trying to track um, 3D technologies that have become a tool that archaeologists might reasonably use with, with existing hardware out in the field. There remains just a, a tremendous amount of expertise as one pushes forward, but there is also just a sort of growing collection of approaches and tools that people should know about. And the, the, the people who should know about them are, one, the archaeologists out there in the field, and then also the general public as they're coming to understand how archaeological data is created. That is why I wanted to give the talk. It did overlap with a class called pretty generically something like 3D and virtual reality for the ancient world that I taught last semester. So I had um, a pretty good, uh, what, what I hope was a good set of examples in line in the lecture. And, and I will ask you guys to interrupt me if I just start monologuing too much. <laughs> I wanted to, to move through ways of creating 3D data and put those in parallel with um, how it is that there's this thing, the internet, to which people have been adding 3D data that they have created. So creating and acquiring content, uh, either again, is one doing it oneself or one is m doing a mashup of your own 3D models and things you've downloaded. And then the idea of rendering that 3D content. So maybe one takes, as I just said, one's own model, and one combines it in a scene with somebody else's, you then add 
artificial lighting to that and have the computer what is called rendering it. That is just create an image of it to get the audience understanding that. And then I moved to not just adding in light, but adding in physical properties. So I sewed an animation that I do of a Roman military vexillum from the third century found in Egypt, but I rendered it into a sort of mountainous semi-border scene. So the so the idea of, of adding in more properties than just light, but uh, wind and then sound, all of these sort of moving slightly towards the idea of, of immersion, whether that's what we think of as actual VR or just like allowing people to use their own minds to imagine what the scene might be more completely. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot going on on the screen, but I am interested in putting people in position to look at a 3D rendering and start thinking about the underlying object, but then also the people who might have been using that object. And of course, those people come together in in cultures and territorial states and empires. So the extent that we can have 3D modeling allowing people to think about the interesting things that people who study the ancient Mediterranean or archaeology as a whole can be thinking about, then I'm like... I'm on the way. And if I'm teaching my students to do that, I'm having a good time. And then just, I then moved forward in the lecture to gamification. So instead of just watching my animations, being able to interact with the scene and, and take on some idea of a character moving through things. And then I did bring out an Oculus Go at the end where people could line up, put VR goggles over there the heads and be like, oh, that's really cool. Uh, so, so I, Paul, you were there. I hesitate to say uh, how it was perceived, but I did think it was, I think we all had a good time. I'm, I'm, I had a good time. I looked like the audience had a good time. Just, just getting the idea that, that these, these tools are out there. Many of them are cloud-based or they're open source or they're free. I didn't quite lie and say they're all trivial to use, but many of the techniques that I went through are things that a, a curious computer user could figure out on their own because you just search how to do this and you'll come across a YouTube video or a tutorial or you know some other person who wants to help you virtually because they've made a resource on the internet to let you figure out how to do it. Um, so that was that was a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a blurb by me, but that's 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 <laughs> what I went through. I gotta say, you know, just based on what you just said there, Sebastian, it's uh it's always kind of floored me that we don't yet have some sort of service where an archaeologist or or really any professional in their industry maybe other industries do have this but where we can't go to a, like a website or somewhere that says listen i and i have this problem i want to do this you know what technologies will help me do this and, and to have that curated by archaeologists that have that have used it or other professionals that have used it and say well i tried this app out i tried this thing out i tried this piece of hardware out here are the pluses here are the minuses and then other people can just basically put together a recipe of technology for what they need to do to do their thing because it seems like every project every research student every grad student out there is trying to reinvent the wheel and figure out what they're doing it it, it amazes me that we don't have this resource yet what do you think about that <laughs> so i so i i think it's a, i think it's a very important issue i think um there is the aspect that the technology is changing very quickly and uh -huh. so so i make sure in my teaching to just figure out like 
every semester, I'm pretty sure that there's one new tool out there that I haven't really used because it came out, you know, in the months before I'm teaching the class or became it became something that I felt I could I could now dive into. And I we can come back to that a little bit. So in direct response to the, the question, things are changing so quickly so mm-hmm. that, uh, a, you know, a podcast like this is actually part of a dialogue that um, is where many of the many it helps the information flow. I have slight concerns about people having the idea that there is a list they can go to that will have recipes that will tell them what to do. So that's not to that's not to reject the idea, but that's to be in, in, in dialogue. How do we how do we give people the confidence that they can explore the internet on their own to find out what is what is enough of a starting point that they think, okay, you know, I I know how to do one thing, like maybe I'm good at making maps. On the basis of that, how do I find out, you know, how to turn that into a 3D terrain model? And then if I, once I know how to do that, oh, how do I add lighting? So, so, so rather than lists with here's how to do things, building competency of how to discover to do things because wait six months and what you knew how to do will be slightly out of date um, i'm just gonna i'm gonna drop a a trope that i that i use places like i can i can identify myself over the years as like four or five different digital humanists as i have taken on skills that have allowed me to do new things so so an essential digital humanity skill, essential digital archaeological skill is being able to learn new new tools. So that's not to reject that there should be a list, but like just like the, the, the keeping the world flexible and moving forward because the tools are changing so quickly. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I can't get, uh, can't quite shake the, the sense listening to both of you discuss this, that uh, we almost need like a stack overflow of, uh, for archeologists, you know, one of those places where you kind of know what the question is you want to ask, you see some answers. Uh, well, this one's from 2011. It probably doesn't apply anymore, but Hey, these two from 2018 might be useful, helps you refine a better question that gets you a better answer that gets you somewhere closer to where you wanted to be. So an actual, an actual question, will your audience know what stack overflow is? I would think that most would. I think anybody that does any programming does. I certainly, you know, as the joke is, you know, a lot of programmers use stack overflow as a starting point for, uh, to jog their memory about, uh, about matters of syntax, uh, you know, in any given language, you know, I haven't used SQL in a while. How do I do a, a left outer join? I can't quite remember. Google it. It comes up as the first hit you remember, and then you move on. <laughs> Yeah, the only the only reason I ask that because yes, you know, one of the skills I want to give to my students is the ability to, you know, navigate Stack Overflow. So when I'm teaching Python programming, um, it is it is true that none of the examples on Stack Overflow are about you know doing tables of ancient world data or anything like that. But their ability to read a modern problem, I'm, I'm searching rent records in New York City and I downloaded 10,000 records or whatever, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and to figure out how that is the same structure with their own data is actually a very important skill that I give them. So yes, you know, 
Stack Overflow is out there and being able to use that, that's the kind of skill that that I think jumpstarts people becoming, you know, their own digital humanists, not just, you know, where to click, but how to how to conceive a problem and and diving into tools like Stack Overflow is an important part of that. Well, uh, another important part of it, and you kind of uh, touched on this as you were explaining, uh, giving the brief uh, synopsis of uh, of that lecture, was uh, the particular tool sets. And you did say, you know, using a lot of uh, web-based, uh, free, open-source software. But I really got a kick out of uh, the number of tools that you use that I've seen at use here at school um, amongst you know, elementary school kids, you know, you were, you went for uh, an example of, uh, of doing a reconstruction with SketchUp. And I've not only just seen a few kids use SketchUp, I've taught dozens of them to use SketchUp uh, in order to attack archaeological problems. And so it's interesting to see that, uh, that confluence between what's being done with grad students and also what's being done with elementary students uh, and how it kind of participates in the same sort of um, knowledge base, knowledge approach to, uh, to attacking problems and to dealing with the, the tool set at hand to come up with novel solutions. So, uh, so it was really, uh, really gratifying to see that you were using some of the same tools like that. Yeah. And I, I think, I think you mentioned that um, when we spoke, Right after the lecture, and of yeah. course, was was super happy to hear that. Yeah, you know, the, the creating a, a a virtual 3D space that communicates to other people what's can might have been going on and invites them to think about further things that were going on in, in a virtual space. Um, you know, it can be crazy complicated. You know, to make it to whatever 3D movie that is out now, whatever that that takes whole teams and hours, and as we know, you know, millions and millions of dollars. But to to the just the, the, I, I'm looking for a word other than basic, but the the effective communication in 3D can happen quickly by people learning tools like SketchUp. And yes, so I'm not surprised to hear that it's elementary school students. They may even have an advantage over graduate students because nobody has told them that it is hard or anything like that. So, um, you know, they, they are, your elementary students may, may have less fear about it and more willing just to jump in um, than my graduate students. So, of course, I love my graduate students, and they work very hard. And I'm really happy with the work that uh, with with the work they do here. So I don't have to need to be uh, being a downer about graduate students or about about any any student, anybody willing to learn. Um, they can figure out these tools. No, I agree. Why don't we take a uh, brief break here, and uh, and we come back. I've got some more questions to you about your approach to uh, to teaching and learning. I look forward to them. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here, jumping in to talk about WildNote. Check it out, wildnoteapp.com. So we've made a lot of improvements to the WildNote platform. If you're hearing this, it is currently March of 2019. And we have an awesome dashboard that we have up on the main page where you can see all sorts of helpful information. You can also see your active projects, archive projects, surveys, photos, and exported reports for all the projects that you're a part of. So what that means is, Using our access control, if you are, say, a project manager and you are associated with three different projects, you can jump right into here and check what progress was made on just those projects by going to your exported reports or going to your surveys or going to photos the next morning and see what was uploaded the day before. That's a pretty awesome thing. So you can click over here to check on it at the end of the day, see what your field crews have done and understand what uh, what tomorrow's cleanup is going to be like. <laughs> so check it out, wildnoteapp.com. 
That's wildnoteapp.com. And you can always schedule a demo with me for Wildnote at digtech-llc.com forward slash Wildnote. All right, back to the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. All right. Welcome back to episode 101 of the Architect podcast. And Paul and I are talking to Sebastian Heath about digital humanities. And Sebastian, I got to say, I, I still can't get, I think you need to put a grad student on this because I still can't get over the idea of a system that people could go to because there are apps out there that will tell you based on the food you have and the expiration date of that food you have, what you can actually cook in your kitchen. And if we can just put something together like that, I, I'm not going to let it die. I'm, I'm just not. So we're going to keep talking about it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally happy to keep talking about it in, in part because how, what, what are the, the multiple ways that a person can understand their situation well enough to figure out what is the next step, whether that's just jumping right into a tool or figuring yeah. out um, who to go to. I mean, we spend a tremendous amount of time as a society teaching young people how to engage in research projects that involve reading text, producing text, reading other people's texts and synthesizing those. Like, like that's, that's it. That is from day one. You know, I started, I have three children. Of course, I was reading to them, all that kind stuff and they're they're reasonably computational competent but but i have we have a society we've focused on um you know narrative as a narrative and writing and that's not bad i'm not trying to replace that but it means that we put people out on the internet with with more complex data forms and they're sometimes unsure what to do so mm -hmm. yeah i agree with you how do we how do we get more people comfortable doing things with digital tools and digital data yeah well, the the comfort uh, the first lecture I think I ever saw you uh, give was um, was you're talking about using R kind of as a GIS uh, for data about Roman amphitheaters and uh, and you know I, I remember coming away from that lecture uh, thinking wow <laughs> it was really uh, amazing to me I mean the way that you're using R along with the fact that you're hosting your data uh, on GitHub they were, those were both really novel to me and so. I've gotten a sense from that and uh, and from other lectures that uh, that experimentation and even play really are uh, are informative to your work. Do, would you mind uh, going into a little more detail as to how they do inform what you do? Um, I, yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, there's a colleague on the internet, um, Sean Graham, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. electric archaeologist, something is his Twitter handle, something like that. Paul, you, you both may know him. Uh, and he talks about failing gloriously um, as an important concept. Um, the idea of play, you know, I, I, I tell my students, nobody gets hurt when you see an error message. You know, you, you come to, they, you come to not have a little sense of of angst when your computer tells you, you know, warning, failed, died, or whatever it is. Um, and you just learn to unpack that and to see what is going on. You learn to, you know, to, to allow 
everybody, oneself, to be in dialogue with the digital representation of scholarship that you've worked to put into your machine, and then you iterate over it, and you get something back on the screen, and it goes into your head, and you think about it, and then that causes you to type on your keyboard, which causes something to happen on the screen, which goes into your head, which causes you to type on back and back and back. If you can get that cycle, and then you're sharing it on GitHub so that other people can see it, if you can get that that cycle of... It's not so much never stopping, but never feeling that you are coming to a finished point. And, and the point of reaching a stage is never to say, I am done. It is to say, what questions, what have I communicated and what further questions are? Because, you know, digital data does not inherently have arbitrary stopping points. It encourages you to say, you know, what else should be on that map? How can I get that other data. So there is no there is no perfect stopping point at which you can like put it on the screen in front of an audience and say, look, I have finished and there you are all to just gaze <laughs> upon it. Just, you know, put stuff out there, see what you think about it, see what other people think about it, and 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 keep going forward. Um so yeah, is it play? Is it failure? Is it this? Is it sharing? Many eyes make for better work. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I like about being here at ISAW is that kind of attitude, general approach to things is encouraged. That that leads me to uh to wonder a little bit more in general about maybe we're leading away from digital humanities for a second, but uh, a little more about graduate students and this particular type of research, because there's a, there's always a common understanding when you undertake new research, especially for a PhD dissertation or something like that, that you're doing original research, right? You're, do, you're having original concepts, original ideas. So there's a lot of ownership that happens with that. And how are, how are, people such as yourself teaching these people coming in that while you want to come up with original things and, and really, you know, figure this out, you need to play well with others and, and let others see this and experiment with it and not take offense when somebody does something different to your, to your experiments or your projects or your data. Um, how, how are you, how do you try to convey that to students? So, so just uh, and as a practical pedagogic matter, one of the ways I, convey that to students is by not requiring that they do it. So hmm. um, I modeled, everybody knows, you know, here at ISO, whatever, that I'm, I'm oversharing on Twitter and GitHub all, all the time. <laughs> um, uh, but then we, we come into class and I will talk to the students about, you know, I'm trying to teach them ways of interacting with digital data so that should they choose to, they could, you know, tweet out a link and people would follow that link to a, to a meaningful way of interacting with their, with some manifestation of their, of their project. But I, I just, I just, I really say you do not have to. And I, I, the, the language that I'm about to say makes no sense in that I tell them, you know, I'll love it if you do that, but it won't, I won't give you extra credit or anything like that. Like, I just want to make absolutely sure that the students don't have to. And then um, I sort of, just, you know, some students enjoy tweeting out the work that they do in my classes and some don't. I think as, you know, as one moves ahead and finds students here who want to have digital humanities be part of their profile as they go out into the world, I will say, you know, yes, it is, it is good to 
participate in the, the, the public sphere that, that is the internet in however you want to do it. Of course, the ones who you know, you know, demonstrate some interest in participating in this community and being digital humanists are inclined towards doing that already. So it's usually not mm -hmm. a, it's usually not a battle, but um, just, just, uh, you know, create, I model a culture of sharing. I certainly model it in the classroom. You know, we are, we're all sharing each other's digital work in the classroom. So they become comfortable in that mini community. But in many ways, that's what a classroom is supposed to be like a, a mini, um, you know, safe part of the real world, you know, analog for the real world in which students can learn how to do things and then they choose of the selection of courses that they've taken with me or elsewhere, you know, what are they going to take forward into their own lives as they become their own independent professionals? So I think, I don't think I can require that people share stuff just because the, you know, laws about educational privacy, but I have found that it is, um, that, that, that the best way to get people comfortable with what they might want to share of their own work is to let them decide what they want to share of their own work. And most students, I take it, uh, are happy to share. And many, you know, absolutely many, many of them are. They'll just, um, uh, yeah, you know, um, really happy that, uh, like last year, some some students used, uh, last semester, students used um, Play Canvas. Um, Paul, that was one of the mm -hmm. tools that I showed in, in the lecture to create a virtual museum that, we created the space around the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan yeah. that were destroyed by the Taliban. They did a really nice job, you know, prelim preliminary work, but they did it. They did a they did a nice job. They wrote it up in a paper that also included other techniques they were using. They posted that paper to um, academia.edu um, with links into their work, and there was they had a brief explosion of it being, you know, top one percent or something like that, and they were super pleased to. Um, have have put that put that work put that work out uh so um again you know you just let let students control their own i think it came up the term ownership giving students ownership of their own identities they will if they that will let them go out onto the internet confident that they will retain ownership of their identities but in a way that is you know collegial and sharing i encourage them you know yeah, somebody may take your stuff and do something with it, but you know that's that they can do that if you publish an article and they don't, you know, they plagiarize you. You know that that's not a that's not unique to that's not unique to uh, anything digital. No, it certainly isn't. Do you have other projects that you're currently working on or your students are working on that you'd like to uh, let us know about? Something that's really exciting you right now? Uh, I'm I'm pleased to be able to report that uh, the getty foundation's digital art history project just gave um a grant to the university of massachusetts at amherst my colleague eric paler up there who would make a for a great interview if you um haven't done one already uh we got a university of massachusetts is the lead uh the lead institution on a three-year grant for a project called uh pompey's artistic landscape or the Pompey's Artistic Landscape Project, PALP, which is a good hashtag. That's always important for a project in which we're going to be um, creating, applying um, the principles of, of linked open data and graph databases overlapping with uh, 
with tools and techniques from the semantic web to Pompeii to allow not just site-wide searching of um, wall painting and the motifs and, you know, find Dionysus as, as represented on wall paintings around the city, but focusing on the relationships between the architectural contexts in which wall paintings are such that one can say, sure, Dionysus is here, but quickly show me what's in neighboring buildings, adjacent buildings, or what what motifs are appearing in um, buildings that are across the street, really trying to focus on the street as an organizational principle within an ancient city. Um, and so we're, we're just at the beginning of that, but with the uh, websites already up and running, we were we were open content from day one. Our data already, you know, going onto GitHub practically as it's being um, created. Um, Eric, motivating force behind um, the uh, an NEH, I think, funded Pompeii bibliography and mapping project. My apologies if I got the the exact funder of that wrong. Um, and we're taking much of the data that was collected for that, which exists as ArcGIS uh, shapefiles and, and bibliographic records, and sort of chunking that, put, making that into smaller, flexible chunks that can be associated with um, art historical descriptions of wall paintings to allow all the things that I just said. So we're... We, heard in December. Uh, it was announced on February 14th. We are underway. And to overlap with the topic of the conversation earlier, you know, I am tweeting out links into that database that let people explore um, where we may be going. It's not uh, give, give us some time to really make it a rich environment. But from day one, put it out there, see how the world reacts to it. Um, we may have to constantly say, yes, that's coming, that's coming, that's coming. But eventually, the things that are coming will come and people will know about it already and, and be using that that resource to, you know, explore the complex urban landscape of Pompeii. That's that's fascinating. It makes uh, me wonder another question here. Um, what do you do about the things? How do you assess as you're going along what's successful and what's not? And how do you decide to abandon certain lines of inquiry, certain tool sets, uh, certain experiments as being unfruitful? Uh, that's, that's a excellent question. You know, I, I think I would almost shift around and say, you know, how do I work to avoid that? Not that I, as I answer slight rephrasing, I'm sure I'll, I may come up with a situation that directly answers, um, your question, but I am very interested in, in maintaining the separation between data and tools. And I have, I have a, a real interest in um, how to structure information so that it can be used in um, a number of ways and flexibly and that people can use it for purposes that I might not have thought of. So I'll really, I'll focus on the, the data first and I'll be a little bit of a, a zealot about trying to get that right. And then I'll try different tools to see what they can do with that data. So 
you know, if I find that a tool does not work, I will abandon it quickly, but with low consequences, because, you know, there's something else out there that will let me, will let me work on things. So can I, can I, can I turn that into, into specifics? Um, nothing's coming up right on the top of my head, but it's more the, the, the strategy. I have found that the strategy for success is to focus on data upfront and then so good strategy and then the sort of deeper more granular tactical level is to try it with different tools is to somebody says i've got this great 3d program okay you know what can it do with my models i've got this great tool for for doing network analysis all right let's try it on let's try it on a network and see whether it's a whether it's a toy or not but nothing rides on the answer to that because there are sets of tools that that can do things so to the parts of the internet that change you know try them and have your data be not that it's not changing but that you're creating sort of you're you're thinking of it as an archival resource to which yes you know every 6 months you will try something new on it and then you just keep doing that. So again, I don't know if that's quite an answer to your question, but but the separation of, of, of data and tool, that's a pretty fundamental computational approach. But I really enjoy thinking about, about representation, and I find that that makes iteration, functionality, programmatic approaches easier. No, that makes sense. You'll find fans amongst us about uh, separating data from the tool set. We talk about, you know, born digital data quite a bit with regards to field data collection. Uh, right. I constantly talk about making our data sets human readable. So if we lose a particular program, uh, we can still re-engineer something in the future. Um, yeah, so it, uh, it's all uh, all sort of of a um, of a similar kind, separating one's data set from the uh, from the actual tools that are being used to analyze or manipulate those data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so as a computational archaeology, digital archaeology, you know, as a that that's pretty basic and 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 the the trick is actually as a discipline practicing that and and having not just you use your data but again a reason to let other people use your data is to find out what is wrong with it because they will do something with it and say ah you know this link isn't working or something like that and then you fix it and you you know push it back up to github and the world's a better place like <laughs> the constant desire to make the world a better place is what motivates motivates much of us it's a slightly strange tool to think about digital archaeology for doing that but but i like to think that by sharing well-structured archaeological data i'm just slightly making the world a, a little bit of a better place <laughs> i'd like to believe you are too thanks <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let's wrap up this uh, this interview, Sebastian. Where can people follow you on Twitter and GitHub? I'm I'm um, S E B H T H, so sort of Seb Heath um, on uh, Twitter. GitHub is um, S F S H E A T H. But it's so so. But if you Google Sebastian Heath GitHub, maybe throw in Roman or something like that, people should be able to find that. Uh, I've <laughs> I've I've dumped my Facebook account. I haven't quite deleted it because I wanted to hold that territory, but I haven't logged in since uh, maybe in over a year now. So Twitter and GitHub are uh, places to, to 
follow things and I do I do try to regularly tweet out like links to my work or observations or retweet people who are doing interesting things you know every every interaction is both about oneself but also about um, you know helping other people enabling other people uh, so yeah Twitter is a good place for for me and other people, you know, to see what's going on in digital archaeology. There are a lot of us out there trying to share things. All right. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks for coming on the show and uh, be sure to tell your your students and uh, and of course yourself and any of your colleagues, if you guys got anything cool you want to talk about in technology and archaeology and where they intersect, then you know where you can talk about it. Yeah, it's been been, been, a, been a whole ton of fun. Thank you so much for the in, invitation and uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll spread the word. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank Take you. Care. Take care. And we'll be back in just a second with the app of the day segment for round out the show. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, this is Chris Webster with one more quick ad and that is for Team Black, arccert.black. So we are setting up a Patreon account and we're soliciting people for basically experts in the field that will do a webinar, essentially 30 minutes to one hour on a single topic, something you're an expert in, something you think you're an expert in, and put together a presentation. I'll do the recording. You don't need to do anything. We'll coordinate how we're going to do that. And then we're going to put that up on our account. And when people go there with a subscription, we track views on that and you get a 70% revenue share after expenses based on the number of views, and the percentage views that you have on your particular videos. So it's a great way to make some extra income, but it's an even better way to put awesome information out into the field. So archeologists have one place to go to find all these things. And why are we charging for this? You might ask, well, good things have value and things that are training have value. However, I don't believe in charging $100 for a webinar an organization you already belong to. I don't believe in charging even more than that in organization you don't belong to and they're just trying to put out good information. This information is worth a lot of money, but it shouldn't be inaccessible and there shouldn't be such a huge barrier to entry to make us all better people and better archaeologists. So check out arccert.black to see what we have up there right now and email me chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com if you want to participate or if you know someone that can participate and can put us in touch. All right, that's arccert.black. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 101, and this is the App of the Day segment. And I'd like to, to follow up with an application, I guess, that could help you in your digital humanities work, especially if uh, screen real estate were an issue. What I'm going to talk about is something that's actually been in my list of apps to talk about for a little while. However, I have avoided it because, well, to be honest, they had some issues. And what I'm going to talk about is Duet Display. And I love anything that makes something do something else, right? So you can have, you can, you can buy something and not have buyer's remorse and know that even if maybe you're not using it for the right purpose or the purpose it was intended for, you can use it for something else and still keep using it. So one of those things is like an iPad or even an iPhone or for that matter, something else that this can display to. But Duet Display is for extending your desktop display. And I love it as a tool for, say, going to a coffee shop or you're on the road, you're you're an archaeologist that's traveling, you don't want to have a huge display, but you need the extra real estate. Um, you can bring Duet Display like because a lot of people carry uh, iPads with them these days anyway, right? They might have one just on them and uh, using it for other things. Well, you can set up in a coffee shop or set up in your hotel room, wherever you're at, and just plug this in and use it. Now, 
it's not a super cheap application and Apple's not showing me the price because I already own it, but the uh, but it works on Mac or PC. So if you have an iPad, you can actually extend your PC display as well. You don't need to expend your Apple display. But unfortunately, it doesn't work on uh, Android tablets right now. Uh, so it's intended to work on an iPad. But the thing I like about it is there's a lot of a display extenders out there, and a lot of them work wirelessly, which is really cool in concept, but it actually doesn't work very well. Like it's, the, the display is not very crisp. It's a little pixelated. Duet has managed to not only give you a, a pretty crisp, clear display when you're extending via wireless, but they actually encourage you to just plug in with a with a lighting cable <laughs> or whatever you have that plugs into your iPad. And then you have like a really cool, really clear, pixel-perfect display sitting right next to your tablet. You can go into your display preferences. You can move it around so, you, so you're dragging windows properly. And the other really neat thing is, for anybody that's seen one of the new MacBook Pros, um, I've got a 2017 MacBook Pro sitting in front of me, and it's got that little touch bar that's right in front of the keyboard. Well, you can turn on the touch bar for Duet Display. So even if you don't have a computer with the actual touch bar, you turn it on, and now that touch bar with all the functionality that you normally have on it is right there on your Duet display, which is a pretty awesome little concept. I actually didn't even notice that until I did it accidentally with one of my older computers the other day when I was I was just had to bring it up for some reason, and I was actually kind of seeing if Duet still worked on it because I needed to do some stuff. So anyway, that's pretty sweet. Um, I love Duet. It's, it's a great program. Again, it's not free. It's not super cheap, but I think it's a hell of a lot cheaper than buying an external display and carrying it around with you. Use the thing that you've already got and, and try that. You can actually extend a, an iPhone as well um, onto an iPhone, which is a little weird. I'm not sure why you would do that, but you can do that <laughs> and, uh, and go from there. So um, really high quality, uh, really great. And, uh, you know, makes a touch screen out of your out of your Mac because uh, they're not touchscreen yet. And and just that touch bar is really cool functionality to have right over there on that. So, Paul, do you use any display extenders or anything like that that are related to tablets? No, I uh, at work I use a, an external monitor and I, uh, and I connect mm-hmm. on my computer to that. You know, I do all my, my main work on one screen and then I have, um, you know, my text windows and to-do lists and such on my, on my, uh, smaller screen to the side. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but no, I don't, uh, I don't do it between any mobile devices. Certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do something similar in that, um, we project via either, um, Apple TVs or, uh, an airplay receiver that you can run as software on a Mac. If we want to display things from iPads up on, uh, on projectors in classrooms, but that's, uh, that's something different. That's not something I personally do because I'm very rarely projecting something from an iPad onto, uh, onto a screen in class, Mm -hmm. but no, it's also, you know, getting used to two screens is one of those crazy things that, uh, that once people start (laughs) using them with their, with their computers, it gets very hard to, uh, to shift away from using it. You feel very constrained when you're only using one screen. So I can certainly, see the, the appeal of, uh, of wanting multiple screens, of wanting the touch screen, of uh, all, all the above back and forth between two different, uh, the two different devices. I'll tell you one thing I've been trying to do with mine, uh, which is why this came back into focus for me, because I, to be honest, I haven't been using mine that much because I'm mostly working at my office and I have a 27-inch um, iMac hooked to a 27-inch Thunderbolt display, so plenty of real estate there. Mm-hmm. But when I go home, you know, I'm still working on my computer and sometimes I want that, but really the functionality I'm looking for is air travel. And I've got some, some more air travel coming up here shortly. And when I'm flying on a plane, I like to do something, you know, I, I like to stay productive when I'm on a plane. Cause it's like a, 
it's almost like an isolated environment where I have no text, phone calls, or emails coming in, and I could just get some solid work done. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a very unique situation. But the problem is I don't fly first class because, you know, I'm yeah. an archaeologist. And so you're back in economy or even basic economy these days. And the minute somebody even moves their seat back, or even if they don't, there's just not enough room for this. You know, I've got the 15 inch MacBook Pro and there's no way for me to open that screen and actually be able to use it. So I've been working on a way. And the only reason I haven't gotten this to work yet is because you got to turn off a bunch of stuff that I'm not ready to turn off just yet. But when I do actually go on a plane uh, next month, I'm going to do this, but you have to turn off like firewalls and some other stuff to make this work. But there is a way to hook the display up via cable through the, um, lightning jack or the, the USB-C on the side here, and then close the laptop and basically just use the duet display on my 12.9 inch iPad as the display with my Apple pencil. So I can be able to put the iPad, put the computer just in the seat back pocket of the airplane and then have the iPad in front of me and actually use my computer as a basically a touchscreen through the iPad and do everything I need to right there. Um, I've seen that that is possible online, but I haven't made that work yet. Like I said, I got to turn a whole bunch of shit off that I'm not really ready to do. <laughs> so, yeah, that sounds handy. I mean, uh, it yeah. must be a little awkward if you uh, have a lot of typing to do, but I used to always keep yeah. my... Um, my computer hooked up to my external monitor at work, but I'd have the computer closed and I used an external mm-hmm. keyboard and an external mouse. Back in November or October, we upgraded our computers to the new MacBook Airs, which have the Retina display. And that's mm-hmm. so much nicer than my old 11-inch MacBook Air that, uh, that now I yeah. use the two screens side by side. But I used to do a similar sort of thing, except for not quite as cool as uh, having the touchscreen display on the iPad. Um, I just uh, pulled up the App Store here, uh, so we have the price. Uh, it's nine ninety nine for Duet Display. Oh yeah, well that's not as bad as I thought it was. Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, pretty affordable. Yeah, no, especially if you find it really useful. Yeah, you might think it odd that you can't just close the laptop and have the display still work. That uh, because that is pretty common to be able mm-hmm. to do. The problem is the when the iPad's plugged in through the Lightning connector or even the new. You know what? The newer iPads, uh, iPad Pros with the USB-C connector on the bottom might actually read differently, but I'm not sure. Uh, but the one with the lightning jack on it that I have, it doesn't read as a display. That's the problem. So yeah. you have to trick your computer into basically staying on and then if essentially turning it on or keeping it on with this connection. And that's not something it wants to do naturally. Um, there's a lot of permissions that have to be relaxed for that to be able to happen. Otherwise, somebody could bust into your computer by just basically plugging a you know plugging into your lightning jack uh, plugging into the connector that way mm-hmm. because it is it is an interface it's not just a display it's actually an interface and that's the issue so you got to turn a bunch of stuff off for that to work so i'll report back on that when i get it to work but in the meantime i think duet is a really great one i've tried air display which i actually have on my list of things to talk about um for an app of the day segment and i'll i'll review that at a later time but i think duet when it works well works really well and you just get superior quality with it so that's my app of the day segment. What do you got for us today, Paul? Okay. Um, <laughs> mine is, uh, it was a little bit of a frustration. So I'm, this isn't going to be as glowing a review as what you had. Um, <laughs> the last uh, app of the day segment, I talked about an app called Clone, Q-L-O-N-E, which is uh, an app for making AR models um, out of real objects. So using the camera on your phone, and it doesn't need this, the newer phones with the AR-capable cameras. It works with, uh, with, for example, my older iPhone 8. And that review was, 
was uh, a little mixed. It kind of worked, but the uh, the models that it came up with weren't very good for anything with sharp edges, which was pretty much everything I tested. It only worked well with a very lumpy object. But it was interesting that you print out a, um, a checkerboard grid and then place the object on top of that. So it would key in and find just the object and it wouldn't get the background. Uh, the reason why I found that one is I was originally looking in the app store for another app, which is what I'm going to review today, called Turnio. Uh, it's T-R-N-I-O. Uh, I have no idea how they came up with that name. I didn't buy, I didn't get the Turnio one uh, before Clone, even though Turnio was recommended uh, at a lecture I went to that was being done by architects who were showing their workflow for doing some um, some work conserving furniture with a conservator. And they were using Turnio for, uh, for showing, you know, 3D models of, uh, of the object mm -hmm. back and forth. And they, they were talking it up as being an exceptionally easy way to capture a number of pictures and turn those into a uh, basically a structure for motion kind of model. Um, so I didn't download Turnio initially. I downloaded uh, Clone because it was free and Turnio cost a whopping $3. And <laughs> it's iOS only. So if you want this terrible terrible program um on your uh on your android uh i guess we're sparing you the trouble um mm -hmm. same sort of thing it works with the uh with the camera it, in this case you open it up it uh it asks you to it kind of projects a circle down onto the ground plane around and over the object and the idea is you move the camera you move the phone with the camera aimed at the object all around it, 360 degrees, until it has a bunch of images. Then it uploads those images to Turnio's servers, and short time later, about five minutes um, or so, you end up with a uh, a model that you can view and turn around and spin around and project onto uh, onto a surface and view in AR. Now, the reason why I am not very thrilled with this program, despite the high praise that it got from those architects, is that in the six models that I've tried, uh, only one of them actually created. All the other ones came back saying that uh, it couldn't create the, uh, a model from the, uh, from the photographs. It doesn't give me any explanation as to why. Um, the one model that it did make, when I go to view it in AR, instead of lying flat on the uh, the surface I'm trying to view it on, it has it stuck up at some weird like 45 degree angle from that surface. So it makes it very <laughs> jarring. Doesn't look very good. One of the uh, the demos that I saw of theirs actually has the same problem. So I think it might be something common to uh, to the software. Um, but then what I really really rankled me was that I decided I must be using this wrong because, you know, it's not unusual for me to pick up some software and just mash buttons and see what works and what doesn't. And, um, and then if it doesn't work, how I expect it to, then I go back and read the manual. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Sebastian was talking about, uh, you know, a wariness of having instructions, you know, cookbook style instructions online for how to do, you know, X, Y, or Z tasks, because he said that, you know, in half a year, they're going to be out of date. So anyhow, I went to Turnio's uh, website to go find out how to use this program. And their blog posts, nothing's been updated in a couple of years. They have a nice video for how to use it. And the interface doesn't match at all. I mean, not even remotely to the, uh, the interface that I've got. 
it uh, it works totally differently. It's missing features that are highlighted on their website. Like on the website, you can rotate the uh, the model and uh, and crop out elements of the background. Well, there's no way to do that in the app here. I haven't been able to find out if I can log into an account on their website and do it there, but it doesn't appear to be the case. So, um, yeah. Um, if you really want to spend three dollars and see if you have better luck than I did, then go for it. Uh, but if not, I can't recommend this one at all. I got only one marginally useful, um, uh, usable model out of uh, out of all the tries that I've had, and even that one has serious flaws. You know, I did notice on their website here the models are actually hosted by Sketchfab. You sure they don't? intend for you to do your modifications on Sketchfab, not on their website? Or are they just being misleading about that? Uh, on the uh, on what they showed on the uh, the website, it looks like you can modify them directly in the app, which is certainly mm. something I cannot do. Um, yeah. There's a button to upload to Sketchfab, which I didn't do, but it's not clear in that case that that's what I have to do is to go upload them to right. Sketchfab and then make whatever modifications there. So if that's the case, fine, uh, then I'll you know I'll keep on kicking the tires on this one and hopefully figure out how to really use it. But the uh, the lack of instructions and the uh, the fact that the instructions that they do have don't match the actual interface make this feel kind of sketchy uh, and not mm-hmm. sketchy in a good way. I mean, sketchy is <laughs> they took my money and. Not three dollars uh, poorer, and uh, only have a story to tell. It's not sketch fabulous. No, it's no. not even close. <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe maybe I'll figure it out and and figure out the exact workflow I have to use. But uh, mm-hmm. but I haven't yet. Either way, it's not very good. Uh, it's just not very good when you just can't figure out how to use it. You know what I mean? Like it might be the greatest thing in the world, but if you can't convey that, then what's the point? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know, I was led to believe that it was really uh, a fantastic program by people who gave an otherwise outstanding lecture a few weeks back, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and showed exactly how they were working uh, amongst you know different groups of people, architects and conservators and uh, and archaeologists, and uh, and using it very effectively. And so, for me to have such a different um, experience with the same program that was a an important part of the workflow is, is a little weird to me. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Let us know if you've used these things, uh, if you've used uh, any external displays or if you have used Turnio, however you pronounce that, or anything else that you like that's um, that's out there. So, And if you have any suggestions for our App of the Day segment, go ahead and email me, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can leave a comment on this show on the website at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 101. I think that's all we've got for this week, Paul. Anything else? Yeah. If anybody hears this and they know how to use Turnio and they know what I did <laughs> wrong, I would love to be schooled on the matter because I, I, yeah, not being able to use a piece of software is supremely frustrating to me. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, again, send in your instructions for Paul so we can get this thing, uh, this thing worked out. <laughs> yeah. Just send in the emails, uh, subject line, you're an idiot. And they'll just like all the other emails I ever get. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to differentiate that Paul? Seriously? <laughs> uh, um, I didn't think this one through either. Did I? Uh, not so much. Not so much. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And again, sending those app suggestions, interview suggestions, and uh, and please go to the website and comment. We love hearing comments and, oh, uh, and and what you guys are getting out of these. So, all right. Thanks, Paul. And uh, next time we'll probably have some some good interviews that I'm gonna record this week. Act- again, in the past for everybody listening to this um, at the Society for California Archaeology meetings. And if you are hearing this on time, then check me out at the Wild Note booth at the 2019 Society for American Archaeology meetings in Albuquerque, New Mexico in April. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.